Good evening, everyone. You're welcome to move forward so we can uh, talk to each other better. It'd be helpful if you don't mind. Okay, so like Leon mentioned, we're continuing with the second half of our financial teaching from this uh, Anabaptist financial book that we're working from. Uh, most of what I'll be sharing tonight is taken from this book. Um, some other books I've read and some other different websites I've looked on. There's all kinds of information that we can find when we start searching financing, uh, Christian financing. There's, there's all kinds of resources out there. One, one uh, if you like listening to podcasts, faithfi.com has just lists of podcasts that are really good. Um, so that's a, something you can look into. But most of what we have is going to be coming from this Anabaptist financial book. But before we get started, I'd like to add to some of the verses that, that Leon started just to kind of prepare our hearts for, for this teaching tonight. Um, God speaks to us about money throughout the Bible, the, the good about it, the bad about it, the bad about it, and there's just a lot of verses. And I'm going to read a number of verses that I pulled out in no particular order. I'm not going to try to explain them, uh, just ponder them as we read them. Beginning in Psalms, surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? And that's taken from uh, one of Jesus' parables. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor, blessings, and prosperity will be yours. Go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your crops. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. And all the believers were together and had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. 
keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. So I'll leave off there. And I know, I know uh, to get the real meaning of these verses, we have to put them in the proper context. But, but the Bible, like Ed said here a few weeks ago, many, many verses about finance. It is, it is an important subject. Um, and along with all this reference to finance in the Bible, we can, we can hear a lot of different voices. We have a lot of different people telling us things about finance. You know, some will say, well, um, if you're wealthy, that's a sin. I've heard, I've heard a, a preacher, preacher preach a sermon like that one time. He said, if it's not God blessing you, you only get wealthy if you're greedy and, and uh, um, greedy and dishonest. So that was his take on it. Um, some will tell us that if you and I are struggling financially, it's because we lack faith. So that's the prosperity gospel teaching. If, if, you're, not, if you're not doing really well financially, you don't have enough of faith. That's the other false teaching. Some think that it's best to live in a shared community. All property and all goods should be owned by the community and distributed to everyone according to their needs. We know about these Anabaptist groups. They take this vow of poverty and they commit to owning nothing individually. Everything is owned by community and everything gets distributed um, as they need it. But our position, or what we believe, is that according to the Bible, God created everything that exists and he continues to own everything that exists. What we call our money and our possessions belong to God. They're not, not really ours, but they belong to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, a familiar verse. Um, the cattle on our th I own the cattle on a thousand hills, another familiar verse. Everything belongs to God. And it's God that, who gives us a variety of different talents and abilities to, to use these talents and abilities that we've been given to earn money and to provide for our families, to help others, to promote his kingdom, and also, I believe, for our own enjoyment as well. And the person that's been given much and the person that, or the person that's given less is no more or less righteous in God's eyes, I, I don't believe. We each, are, we each are responsible to use the gifts, the resources that we've been given to honor him. Um, again, God is the owner. You and I are the caretakers. So that's the, that's the mindset that we should have as we, as we uh, think about finance and study this, this together. I got a, uh, copied a few 
pages from some of the first page comes off of a out of a website. The other page I copied off of this Anabaptist financial book. But if you want to grab one and pass them around, and we'll work kind of work from, from that. I don't think I have enough for everyone, but if you if families can share them, that will be good. And this is just a little description of, of family budgeting. And, you know, if, if, if we're going to be responsible caretakers of God's money, we should have a plan. Um, living without a plan is not some special act of faith, I don't think. I don't think it's like suddenly I don't have, a, I don't have any plan in the world, so I'm really depending on faith. I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus said... Which one of you, if you decide to build a tower, are not going to first sit down and calculate the, what this is going to cost me and see if I actually have enough of money to finish it? So um, Jesus condones planning. And I think we're responsible to, to have a plan. And it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a written plan. My wife and I don't have a, a written plan. Some of you maybe more detailed than others, and you might have a written list of all your income, all your expenses, which is a good idea. It helps us manage better. Um, and, you know, if we, if we understand our income and expenses, it's likely going to reduce some stress in our lives. God wants us to enjoy life. God doesn't want us to be stressed out because of our finances. The book, the book that we're working from points out that 50% of marriages fail and financial issues are a large contributing factor to this. In many cases, that's, that can cause it. And as, as Anabaptists, we've been taught to work through these kinds of things. We don't, we don't simply throw in the towel and run when this happens, but we, but we do face the same disagreements and stress that many others do, I'm, I'm sure. And it's not, you know, if you think about it, it's not surprising that, that there's differences of thinking um, between a husband and wife, married couples. We, we think different about money. We come from different backgrounds, different teaching, different families. And, you know, I'm, just for example, I may have grown up in a family that had uh, very little, so I was taught to be frugal and, and uh, save everything I had, and po that's a possibility. And maybe my spouse come from a family that really didn't have to worry about that. So, so she may say, um, she may be quicker to spend. And I've been taught that I buy everything that costs the least. So if it, I shop at uh, any place where I can get it for the lowest cost. And your, your spouse may shop at a place where things are higher quality. They may, they may think, spend more and get more. So there's different ways of thinking. And the person that's taught to be frugal um, probably thinks their spouse is extravagant. 
and the person that maybe spends more is going to think, well, you, your, your spouse may be um, wasteful because they're buying things that, that don't last, that type of thing. So there's just, it's, it's not, it's not um, surprising that this, that this happens. Neither, neither one is right or wrong, it's just different ways of thinking. We all, we all think differently. And that's God's plan, we all think differently. So, a lot of this can't be eliminated, but having a plan, having a budget in place, um, certainly would help. Keeping a record of our finances is going to force us to talk, with, to talk about financing with our about our finances with our spouse and to have that conversation. And we know that the communication is what's really important. One of the books, one of the books that I read had a, just a simple suggestion in that I thought was a good idea. It said, it was a, someone else said in their marriage, they, they establish, together they establish an amount of money that each individual can spend without talking to the other one. So if, if you and your wife have a, um, an agreement that, hey, anything over $500, we need to agree on this together, or anything over $200 or $1,000, whatever the number is, if, if you have an agreement that, that at a certain point you make the decision together, I think that's, that would be very helpful. I thought that was a good suggestion. So let's look at the pie chart that, that was handed out here. And this is basically um, what we're going to look at this evening as we talk about family budgets. Last, several weeks ago, Ed talked about the, the giving category and we're going to hit a couple of the other things and, talk, and discuss them. Um, starting with, with some of the major expenses and housing. Like if you look in the, at the blue part of the diagram here, housing, there's, there's, they're suggesting 25 to 35% of our income. We don't want to exceed more than 35%. And, and, a lot of resources will say if you take your housing cost and you take your home mortgage, your insurance, your uh, real estate taxes and you add all that together, it should not exceed 33% of your annual income. So that's a good rule of thumb to go by. If you try to keep that within 33% of your annual income, that's in line with, with the averages. And you know, you, we, we can talk a little bit about house ownership, house renting. Um, home ownerships may not be for everyone, but if history repeats itself, it's probably a good investment. Investing in a house is probably a, a good financial decision because one, real estate appreciates in value. And anyone that's been watching for the last five years can vouch for that. It, it jumps way up. So this, in many cases, it's a, good, it's a good investment. And second, and this might be equally important, a mortgage payment is a, a forced savings plan. So if you're going to have a mortgage payment, you're gonna to wanna to pay that. You don't want the bank t 
taken back what you have. Um, so you're going to do whatever you need to do to, to pay that. And it, it forces you to save. It forces you to, to uh, make that payment. But for some, renting could be a better option. And if you read, some of you may follow up on this kind of thing, but if you read, you, you see that there's kind of a growing trend today for people to rent and say, we really don't want to own a home. And, and it's not for everyone. Um, and they, they cite several reasons for that. One is flexibility. If I, if I have a job that has me working in Lancaster, and I may, my job may, I may get transferred to who knows where. I might go to uh, Pittsburgh in a year, year or two from now. So it doesn't make any sense to buy a house in those cases if you're not planning to stay for at least five years is, is what, the, what the, uh, a lot of the resources will say. Another reason is you have a fixed cost. If you have a if you have a rent payment, you have no unplanned repairs, no surprises. What you, what you have in your budget is what it's likely going to be. Another reason is some want to save money so that they can put a larger down payment on a house in the future. So renting may give you the ability to save a little more of your income than if you were uh, paying a mortgage. But a lot of us, want to own a home so that we can build equity. And if that's your case, if that's my case, there's several things that, that we need to keep in mind to try to, and one of the, one of the good rule, rules here is this 33% rule. Try to, try to keep our housing costs, including our mortgage, affordable. Um, try to keep it within that 33% range. Banks, we won't talk about, we won't talk a lot about debt, but banks typically like to see a, a debt, a debt to income ratio of when they, when they, when they approve a mortgage for a home, they want to make sure that your debt to income ratio is not higher than 43% is the number they use today. So, so you, you don't, you want to make sure that you add all your debt together and your income your debt is no, no greater than 43% of your total income. Another thing to think about that the book pointed out, and, and we might do this without really considering it a lot, is the book pointed out, consider buying a house that, that maybe isn't in the best of condition and put some of your own labor into it painting, repairing, whatever that might be. And, and when you do that work yourself, suddenly you have a house that maybe you paid 200000 for and now it's worth 225000 and you really don't have anything but your time into it. So we call that building sweat equity, building equity um, in, your, in your home without spending anything. Another point on, on housing is and again, this maybe goes back toward the, the debt thing that we already had already talked about, but try to pay your loan off as quickly as you can. Um, I don't know if home loans today have prepayment penalties or not. Maybe someone knows, but I, I don't know. I, I read, I was trying to look at that. I know, I know I learned this from experience years ago. 
I had a loan and it was more of a business loan, but I wanted to pay it to, to get rid of that interest, that ongoing interest. And I went to pay it off and I had to pay a penalty to do that, which was equal to the interest that I would have paid. And I don't think they do that. I don't think that's legal with home loans, but it's something to look at if you're, if you're making a loan for, for anything. Be sure that, you know, the, a, a good, I think a good practice is to do a long-term loan without a prepayment penalty. So if you, if you stretch it out as long as you can so it's affordable, but have the ability to pay on to that principle, that's probably the, the best case scenario. If I calculated right, if you, if, you know, another reason to, to pay this thing off as quickly as you can is, is the difference in interest. If, if I calculated right, if, you're, if you have a $200,000 loan at 7% and you, and you set that loan up for 30 years, you're gonna be paying the 200,000 plus 279,000 in interest. So you're actually gonna be pay, paying 479,000 when you're all done. If you knock that down to 25 years, you're going to pay your 200,000 plus 224,000 in interest. And if you pay it, if you, if you reduce it again to 20 years, you're down to paying 172,000 in interest. So it can go from 20 to, on a $200,000 loan from 20 years to 30 years, you're over $100,000 in interest, so I think the the goal should be to do all we can to to uh, pay that off, so we're not paying the bank. So that's I, I guess that's really all I have to talk about on housing. That's probably in most of our cases, it's probably our largest expense. Um, another thing. If you look on the chart, another thing is uh, medical costs. Medical costs are a big variable. Uh, healthcare, eye care, dental, all, all these things are unpredictable. And the chart shows budgeting five to 10%. And if you look at the, the page, maybe I should explain that. The page behind there that I stapled to it, it really doesn't, it really doesn't match the pie chart, but it, it's just two different resources. The one I just, the front page I just pulled off of a website. This guideline budget, the second page, is very similar, but it's a copy out of the book here. So the average health insurance policy for a family of four is over $1,200 a month right now. It's over $1,200 a month for a family of four. It's almost, it's almost unaffordable for, for many. Um, and thankfully, we can greatly reduce this with some of the Christian sharing programs, um, make that a lot more affordable. Some of you might have insurance covered through your employer. And if you're considering changing jobs or, or looking at doing something different and, and you're looking you're comparing to employers who offer an insurance policy, that's a big deal anymore. You, you wanna understand what your, what your employer is offering. That can make a difference of a few dollars an hour in, in 
pay if, if, the, if the employer is offering a good medical insurance plan. The next thing, and it's not shown on our front page here, but it is on the second pages that I'd like to think about is education. Private, private education is expensive. Um, and it's certainly not a fault of the schools or the school teachers. They, they sacrifice a lot for, for this private education, but it's expensive to, to run a school. Um, and it's, but it's, it's something, you know, my, my son-in-law just, just uh, enrolled their son, my grandson, into, into school for his first year, and it, he just couldn't believe the cost of tuition, how high this private schooling tuition is. He said, it's almost affordable. And I, I told him, I said, it's, it's almost unaffordable, but really, when it comes down to it, you can't afford not to do it. Um, with the school systems today, with what they're teaching, um, it really doesn't matter what it costs. We have to figure out a way to, we have to figure out a way to do it. And one of the big, one of the big things in school tuition, and maybe some of you have already enrolled in this, but if you haven't, you may want to talk with your school about the EITC tax credits, the Educational Improvement Tax Credits. It's that's a real, a real help. It's not been around for, for that many years, but um, they'll they'll look at they'll look at your income, they'll look at the number of dependents in your family, and from what I understand, most families will, will qualify for it. Uh, it's not like you have to earn $20,000 or less to be eligible. You can have a, a pretty good income and still qualify for partial help from the, from the uh, tax credits. And I think another thing is on this EITC program, it's a good way for us as grandparents to be involved with our with our grandchildren's education. We can we can uh, we can it's up until the maybe three three or four years ago, it was only made available to businesses. Businesses could contribute money into this fund that was, and they could choose which schools they want to support. And it was kind of locked down to businesses that could do this, but a number of years ago, they opened that up to individuals, and you or I, we have to meet a, meet a few qualifications, but you or I can, can take money that we would pay for Pennsylvania state income tax, and we can instead use those same dollars to help, help uh, schools, help private schools. So, if anyone, and maybe maybe most of you understand the program and are are working with that program, but if anyone wants to learn more about it, um, I know I have uh, I can get you the contact information for a person at Faith Builders that can make that whole process real easy. She, uh, she knows exactly what it is, how it works. You know, and they'll they'll give you the forms to fill out, and it's a simple simple thing. And it's, it's really, really helpful for a lot of schools. In fact, that's what, that's what keeps a lot of these 
private schools alive today, I think. I mean, just the, if they wouldn't have that, those tax credits, um, it would be much harder. The next, the next thing we'll look at is vehicle and transportation costs. I don't have a, much expertise on this. Um, try to find a vehicle that fits your budget. If you, if you work for a company that allows you to use a company vehicle to travel back and forth to work, don't, th don't take that for granted. It's a, it, it, that adds up a lot. Um, that amounts to a lot in a year's time. Consider the cost of operating cost of your vehicle, gas mileage, repair costs. Um, and again, I don't know much about this, but I know there's people here with mechanical knowledge that can give you a lot better advice on this than I can. One thing that's, that I noticed in the last number of years that either I wasn't paying attention or it didn't happen five years ago, but the difference in, in gas costs you can drive from one end of Lebanon to the other, and you can find gas stations that the cost of gas varies by 40 cents a gallon in a two or three mile range. I don't think it used to be that way. So it's something that we have to, uh, that we have to uh, keep in mind. It might not be the most convenient place to fill up my car, but if it's 40 cents a gallon less, it's worth driving a few extra miles, I would think. Another, another big expense is food and household costs. Um, that's a tremendous cost. The cost of food has moved, has gone up 23% since 2020 in the last three, four years. Um, what do we do to keep this in check? How do we, how do we deal with those kind of increases? Maybe someone has a, a tip. How do you do it? Plant a garden, shop at Hornings, shop at Costco's, I don't know, eat less. One thing, one thing I, I thought of is, you know, just because your parents may have, may have shopped and bought their groceries at a certain place, don't mean that you should do that. You need to, you know, we may have to get more creative. Times change, things change. What, what was the best value 15 years ago may not be the may may not be the best best value today. I I hear my family or or people at work talking about where to go to get the best deals on certain products, and it's surprising what you can learn. You can't you can't just go to one place and get everything you need and do what's most convenient because um, it's probably going to cost you more. And I think it's it's good. It, it's a good practice if, if you find a bargain or an overstocked item at a, that a certain store is trying to get rid of, share it with others. Um, we need to be creative, we need to collaborate. It's a, it's a good way to, to help others save um, at the same time. It's a good, a good use of social media to share that kind of thing. I've heard people say that they save money by, they save cost on their food by using Walmart's curbside app. And I never did that, but some of you probably do that. And, and they, their thought behind that is 
they, they, you know, they put their checklist on their phone or whatever, and they only get the items that they really need. They're not distracted by these, these uh, attractive marketing displays inside the store. So they get what they need, and, and that's all they get. So that's a, something to consider. Another good use of technology. So I think I'm not going to get into the smaller cost items, but maybe someone has an, a thought on, on these things, housing costs, food costs, medical costs, education. Um, does anyone want to share any tips for us on that? few thoughts I have um, that I noted here. Companies spend millions of dollars on marketing just trying to convince us to, to buy things that we really don't need. Um, they're, they're spending all kinds of money. They make it easy. Just click buy now and it, it, it gets dropped off on our doorstep the next day. It's so, so simple. But in many cases, what's the most convenient comes with a cost, comes with an additional cost. Companies try to target compulsive buyers. That's another thing we got to keep in mind. Um, if, if, you're, if you're sidetracked or if you know you're a compulsive buyer, um, you may have to create some roadblocks for yourself just to save you from that. I, I, um, I read, as I, was, as I was studying for this, I read a note from someone that said, one of the things they do is when they buy online, they put their items in their cart and then they don't buy. They wait 24 hours and the next day they come back and in some cases they'll remove a number of the items from their cart and buy less simply because the compulsive buying thing is what, what we have to be cautious of. Another thing take a close look at your membership and subscription fees and see if they're really necessary. All these little things that they, these automatic debits that they pull out for your account, you sign up for something and it only costs you two or three dollars, but it's two or three dollars every month and then you do it again and then it's six dollars every month and you do it again and it's eight dollars every month and it just goes on and on. So we have to look at that and say, um, do I really need that? Do you really need Amazon's Prime membership or can you get, get the same thing? Um, they're going to deliver for free even if you don't pay, pay their, for their Prime membership. And the other thing is some of these companies make these subscriptions and memberships real hard to cancel. They intentionally make it hard to cancel. And I got an idea about that. I got an idea for that. It's maybe not the right thing to do, but if you cancel your credit card, you'll cancel your subscription. It'll it'll end. So I I that's might be a way to do it. I I I canceled my credit card here a year or two ago because I got got it scammed at a at a gas pump. And so I I uh the bank called me and said it's being used to buy something in Boston, I believe, and just ask if, you know, 
had no, I had no past history of buying things in that area. So it, 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 triggered, it triggered the bank. And so I canceled the card. And along with that, all these subscriptions that you buy over the years are gone. And you, gotta, you can stop and think and, and say, do I really need that? Or uh, Amazon Prime, for instance, I, I didn't renew my Amazon Prime. I don't, and I don't know that anything has changed. If, if I want to buy something on Amazon, you're going to get free delivery, I think. In most cases, you're going to get free delivery whether you have Amazon Prime or not. So just be aware of that. These, that's a, a big revenue generator for a lot of companies, just these little monthly fees. If you can get a million people to do that, they're, they're doing just fine. Probably, and we're all aware of this, probably the biggest threat or one of the big reasons for financial challenges or financial difficulties is our tendency to, to try to keep up with the Jones. Uh, our tendency to compare ourselves among ourselves. It's, it's probably one of the biggest reasons we, get in, we can get in financial trouble. And we gotta keep reminding ourselves, if we have Jesus living in our heart, we're rich. We don't need to be sized up or sized down compared to other people around us. We're, we're, we have everything we need and we just have to continue to remind ourselves of that. Okay, I'm going to move on to saving and investing. That's the second section of what we want to look at tonight. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, There's treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. In other words, he's saying, don't spend everything you have. And at the same time, the Bible warns us about, so this verse says, don't spend everything, save. Um, and the Bible also warns us about finding our security in, in money and our own abilities. So we have to, you know, one side of the spectrum is um, not saving at all and thinking that, well, I'm, I got a lot of faith. I, I, I don't need to have that false sense of security. And... The other side is to uh, um, to be to to take this to an, another extent that's that we call hoarding. You know, we can we can be hoarders, or we can be um, not save at all. So we have to find a, a balance somewhere there between responsible saving and hoarding. What are some reasons to to save? Maybe I'll start with the wrong reason to save. One, the wrong reason to save is out of fear. Um, the book points out that those who save out of fear will never have enough and they'll never lose their fear. And that's probably real true. If, if, you never, if you're gonna save just because you're afraid of what could happen, you're never gonna save enough. And you're probably always gonna be fearful about the next day. So um, God tells us he he has it covered. He's, he's going to take care of us. The right reasons to save. Um, three reasons that I, that I found in the book here. The right reasons to save. One is for anticipated expenses. One is for emergencies and unanticipated expenses. And one is for retirement. 
So anticipated expenses, things you know you're going to have to spend money for, like replacing the tires on your car or fuel to heat your house in the wintertime, or if your work is seasonal, you anticipate months that you have less income, so you have to save to prepare for that. Other reasons for emergencies and unanticipated expenses like unexpected car repairs, unexpected home repairs, unexpected loss of your job, unexpected medical bills or dental bills, this can take us by surprise, all these unexpected things. Some suggest that we keep a, an emergency fund of six months of our six months of our monthly um, of our monthly um, living expense. So that's a, a guideline that some suggest. Six months of your living expense in an emergency fund for these unexpected things. The other thing is for retirement and for most of you it's probably not on your radar at all but it comes around quickly. Um, and I think if you're, if you're making, if you're young, you're making house payments, in a sense you're preparing for retirement simply by building equity in your home because you can always, in your, in your later years when you're not able to work, you can possibly downsize and, and use that to pay for your retirement expenses. The other reason is so that we can help others. If, if you and I have no savings account, no money in our savings account, and we have a family member or a friend or neighbor or whatever it might be that suddenly hits some hard times, we really have no way of helping them. So another reason for saving is to, so that we can help when the, when the time arrives. So we're going to talk a little bit about investing. I'm not, I mean, I'm taking what I've found in, in different resources. I'm by no means an expert on this. Uh, but I believe the key is, the key to investing is to start early and to be patient. The, the quicker you begin saving, the, the better it's going to be for you because you're earning interest. You're taking advantage of of compounding interest. You're, you're earning interest on your initial investment and you're earning interest on the interest that it creates. So compounding interest is, is something that really adds up if you give it enough of time, give it enough of years. Do you remember the rule of 72? Does everyone, anyone remember been taught that, the rule of 72 when it comes to, to saving and investing? If you take the rule of 72 is, and I don't have a calculator with me, but if you take, if you, let's just say you, you have an investment, let's say you place $10,000 in a bank certificate and the interest rate that they're offering is 5%. The rule of 72 is you take 72 and you divide it by the interest rate, 5%, and that's gonna tell you how many years it's going to take for that amount to double. So if someone has a calculator, if you take 10,000, if you take 10,000 or take uh, 72 and divide it by 
divided by 5%, in 14.4 years, that 10,000 is going to become, is going to be 20,000. And if you give it another 14.4 years, it's going to be 40,000. So, so uh, patience, time and patience is the, is the key. So if you, take, if you take the same thing, let's just say you have, you have something that you know how to get 7%. So if you, if you use that number, 72 divided by seven, in 10.2 years, that $10,000 just became 20,000. And in, if you're continuing to get a 7% return in 20 and a half years, it doubles again. So the, the compounding interest is, is uh, it just teaches us to be start early in our life and you don't have to be a lot, but start early, try to save something and take advantage of that. So there's lots of different ways that we can invest our savings and I'm, I'm not familiar with all of them, but you know, bank certificates is one that's turning out right now to be a, a pretty good thing. Year, you know, a few years ago, they weren't worth anything, it wasn't worth doing, but today you can get a 5% rate on a 13 month or 18 month certificate. So it's a, it's a real low risk way of saving and it's a low risk way of earning income, earning interest income. Mutual funds is another way um, that's typically returns a little bit more than a bank CD, but you know they, they have historic returns of seven to ten percent, and that's simply that's simply owning a little piece of a lot of different companies and trying to to that way you're not as as a, it's not as risky because one company underperforms another company may be overperforming. And, and averaging it out. So that's a, that's a good, I think that's been a good thing too. But when you, if, one of the things that I think about with mutual funds, if you choose that route, um, think seriously about, about a um, value-based plan. You can buy, you can, you can invest with value-based plans where your, your advisor will, will, put together a group of companies that match your values. So I think the last thing I would want to do, and most of us would want to do, we don't want to be part of a company that, like a tobacco company or a, a Budweiser or something like that. Those companies can perform well, but it really doesn't match our values. It's not consistent with what we're trying to do. So these, comp these, invest these companies will put together groups of these investment companies will put together groups of companies that'll create this mutual fund that will, will align with your values. So I think it's, that's an important thing. Used to be hard to find, but today it's, it's not that hard to find. But the first thing they'll tell you is that it probably won't pay you as much, but you gotta get past that and, and think about what you're, what you're really trying to accomplish. You, wanna, you want to align with companies that, um, that produce products or provide services that are actually good for people, that are actually good 
actually improve our society, not, not take from it. So probably one other thing on, an, I guess, individual stocks. I don't, some of you may invest in individual stocks. It's a, it's a typically a higher risk, higher return option. And I don't understand individual stocks or the, or the stock markets well enough to, to do that or even talk about it. So um, when, when Leon asked Ed and I about sharing something on finance, I remember, I remember you said, is there anything you learned as you were growing up? If, you know, how are we going to go about this? If, can you share anything that when you were growing up that you learned about finance that stuck with you over the years? Um, and I was just thinking about that as I was looking into this. And probably one of the things that my father would have drilled into my head that, that I never forgot, that I think was really good, is he was really against anything that looked like a get-rich-quick scheme, anything that looked like easy money. He, he was all about the old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. That's, that's just what he taught me growing up, and I, I, uh, I never got caught up in that kind of thing. But it seems like, unfortunately, every 10 years, it could be more or less, something comes around and rolls through our communities and someone comes up with some scheme and defrauds a lot of people or hurts a lot of people. I remember in the 90s, it was um, Greater Ministries. Do you ever, anyone remember that? Greater Ministries, Greater, Greater Ministries International or something. It was a group in Florida that was promising real high returns. Um, they were promising that if you invest with them, you were get, you, your money will be doubled. Your money will be doubled in like 18 months or whatever it was. You're going to double it. And, and they would cite all these Bible verses about uh, God's going to do this for you. God promises to bless us and all those kinds of things. And I know a number of people that, that fell into that. And I know, I know a guy that went to the bank and loaned all he could loan and gave it to them. And needless to say, he was paying on that for a lot of years. I know another person that I worked with in, when I worked in Ohio, I know a, a person there that fell into that greater ministries thing and he lost his house. He lost his house, he lost everything he had. And he was out there at an age when he should have been starting to maybe back down a bit on his workload. He, he had to start all over. So that's a, a word of caution when it comes to investing. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And, and a lot of these, I, I don't think these people from our Anabaptist communities that end up in this situation, I don't think they set out to steal from people. It's not their goal. It's not their goal at all. I don't, I don't think it's their goal at all. I think they are simply overly optimistic business people that have a business that's failing and they, they somehow convince themselves that if only I had more money and more time, I could get this thing back on track. And so they go to their bank and the bank, of course, looks at their finances and says, uh, you're not getting anything more here. So they'll go out and solicit other people and the only way they can 
get those funds is to, is to pay high, a higher interest rate than the banks do. And needless to say, a lot of people fall for that. If, you can, if, if you're gonna offer me seven or 8% when the bank is offering me five, I'll do it. And when this happens, they, this, you know, this, the, the person that's, the business person that's in trouble over time, he, he ends up creating an illegal Ponzi scheme. He's using new investors' money to pay returns for the, for the old investors to keep this thing going. And it finally, you know, the, finally the government has to jump in and stop it and put an end to it, and a lot of people lose that way. So that's, a, that's just a word of caution on, on investing. If it sounds too good to be true, most likely it is. So just a couple of things in closing here. Um, we probably tend to simplify things on a, on a session like this. It's just follow the charts, follow all the information and everything will be fine. And I know it's not the case. I know it's, it's hard. Um, raising a family is expensive. And for many of you in your generation, it's even tougher than it was in ours. Your parents might not tell you that, but I think it's tougher for many of you than it was for some of us because the cost of, the cost of living is increasing faster than wages. It's just simply a fact. It's, that's what's happening. And it's gonna make, it makes it tougher, but it's, it's possible. Another thing, just a note in closing here, always remember the most important things in life cannot be bought with money. We all know it, we all know it, but we have to remind ourselves that. The most important things in life cannot be bought with money. I ran across another quote as I was preparing that, that I thought was good. It said, uh, Money is completely the wrong measuring stick for ascertaining success or failure as an individual. Money is completely the wrong measuring stick for ascertaining success or failure as an individual. So that's a worldview that's going to create a lot more problems than it's going to solve. Um, that's another thing to keep in mind. So there's a lot of, there's other things that we could go over, but I think that's where we'll end. Um, you know, another, I guess, maybe I'll, maybe I'll mention this. What, what do I do, what's, what do I do if I get into financial trouble and don't know how to get out? Um, it can happen, it can happen, and it's not like, like you're a bad person if it happens to you, um, but what do you do about that? I know, just from my experience, um, I, I remember when, my wife and I first got married. I, I hired someone to do some work. Um, I hired someone to do some work, some, someone that I knew, a company that I knew, a guy that owned the company that I knew. And wouldn't you know, the work got done and I get a bill, I got an invoice for this work and it's way more than I expected. I didn't have, I didn't have the money to pay for it. Um, so what do you do in a case like that? I, I, did the, I did the wrong thing. I just looked, I just 
looked at and, and thought, well, that's, I can't afford it. I'm not gonna pay it. So I'll pay it eventually, but I'm not gonna <laughs> rush to pay it. So I left it go and you know, you get the statement every month and you get reminded that you're, you're not paying. And um, I knew it was the wrong thing to do, but first of all, I didn't have the money to pay it. Second of all, I justified not paying it by saying he charged too much. And I don't, I, I don't think he did. Uh, it's just what it cost and I wasn't prepared for it. But finally, a year later, I had to buy something that this company provided. And I thought, I'm gonna take care of this once and for all. And I went to him and I said, I, I'm gonna, I wanna buy this. I'm gonna make a loan from the bank. I wanna buy this and I wanna pay for for everything, you know, finance charge or whatever, you're gonna charge me for this bill that I wasn't paying. And, and I got it all taken care of. And, you know, I guess I, I'm saying that just to, just to say this, we, we don't wanna be the kind of people that have to uh, duck into the aisle when someone walks into the hardware store that we owe money. Um, we, we, there's ways of getting around that. If you're, if, you, if you're in trouble, there's people in our church that would, that would help you work through it, I'm sure, um, that would give you good advice and how to work through it. Um, another thing, you know, in, in, in our business, I watch this happen quite often over the years. People can't pay and they'll make a, they'll make a phone call or they'll stop in and say, I don't have the ability, I can't pay this invoice, I don't have the money, but if you let me make payments over the next year, I can, I can deal with that. And businesses, for the most part, are all about that. They would love to do that. If they can, if they can allow you to make payments, or if, they can, if you can negotiate with them and say, hey, if I pay this, can I deduct the finance charge? In many cases, they're going to do that. Um, they, don't want to be, they don't want to be holding that for years and years. So I think that the thing to do is just communicate with whoever your, your, uh, whoever it is that you owe money, just communicate with them and, and work out a payment plan. Most people are, are ready and willing to do that. So I think that's all I have, Lee, and we could, you know, we could talk about estate planning and wills. I mean, that's another thing that ties in well to, to financial um, seminars, you know, and I don't have much to say about that, but if you don't have a will, you probably should. You should probably should hire an attorney and, and get one done because it's important. Um, I think that's all I have, Liam.